you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Now as I begin this evening, remembering the previous two nights, but aware of the fact that there may be one or two people here, or more than one or two, who were not here on Sunday night or Monday night, let us just for a minute or two regain and deepen our awareness of the thing we are talking about. This extraordinary and entirely unparalleled thing which we call revival and which has been a recurring phenomenon throughout the history of the Christian Church from the first century to our own century. Now I've tried to range far and wide in order to illustrate the origins of revival, the way God begins his work and continues it, the character of revival, the reactions of men and women who are in it, and the nature of revival which is so beyond anything else in the church's experience or history. And from various eyewitness accounts, we've looked at revivals in the past and in the present. I've tried to major on fairly recent church history, so that you don't keep these things, as it were, in a glass case. We've seen revivals from the 1800s to the 1950s. You've seen revival in various parts of the world, as diverse and far apart as Manchuria and New York, Stoke-on-Trent in England, and Neville Bongo in Zaire. And I've done that for a reason. I've chosen my evidence out of a mass of evidence for a reason. We've seen how absurd it is to put down the symptoms and experience of revival as mere hysteria. Or perhaps as part of a national characteristic. Well, the Welsh are inexcitable people, but we don't do that sort of thing here. And we've seen how utterly beyond the church's best efforts in crusade evangelism or doctrinal reform and reformation, or even her normal spirituality and blessing, this thing called revival is. It is inexplicable in any terms but those of God's Holy Spirit doing a special and extraordinary work, even by the standards of God's providence and dealings with his church. It is the enthroned Christ pouring out something different, something fresh and new and mighty, which the church can hardly cope with and gives her a taste of the glory that is yet to be revealed. Now, we saw yesterday at some length the character of revival and I try to take you in to scenes where revival was actually happening so that you saw the dynamic of it, the power of it, the shock of it and the results of it. We've seen the character of revival in some detail last night, but for those that are absent, let me just at the beginning of tonight very briefly capture the scene in two places at two different times, very far, far apart, and in every sense of the word, um, diverse. I want to try to recapture tonight, right at the beginning, uh, some of the, something of the strength 
and the size of what revival really is. So I'm going to quote something from the Welsh Revival of 1859. You remember I talked about the New York Revival, the Ulster Revival also of 1959, of 1859. Well, I'm coming to the Welsh Revival for a moment. And then I'm going to quote something from the African Revival in Zaire in 1953. So they are far apart in time and in geography and in uh, people and national characteristics, if you like. Now, let's look at one scene, very briefly, uh, from Dr. Ivion Evans' account, Revival Comes to Wales, the story of the great 59 revival in Wales. Now, here is just one example that I've chosen almost at random. Almost at random. It speaks of the ministry of David Morgan, whom I spoke of on Sunday night, you remember, and if not, you can get the tape. And we read... On this occasion, an old minister writing to make a record of what happened. The evening service was terrible. So near. No, wait. The evening service was terrible. So near was the revivalist to his God. But his face shone like that of an angel. So that none could gaze steadfastly at him. Many of the hearers swooned. On the way home, I dared not break the silence for miles. Towards midnight, I ventured to say, Didn't we have blessed meetings, Mr. Morgan? Yes, he replied. And after a pause, added, The Lord would give us great things. If only he could trust us. What do you mean, I asked? If only he could trust us not to steal the glory for ourselves. Then the midnight air rang with his cry at the top of his voice as he shouted, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory. David Morgan visited several places for the second time during January. And he had, an amaz he had amazing power while ministering at Craig, Aberfruid, near Llanguirvion. Don't ask me to repeat those names. <laughs> and we read a similar account coming from that. Stalwart fellows from the mountains would moan as if crushed beneath stupendous burdens or pierced with swords. <clears throat> Some would weep as if their hearts were breaking. Others would fall into ecstatic swoons. Waves of power overwhelmed them, and most extraordinary physical effects accompanied their impact. Many leaped and danced in the exuberance of their rapture. The Lord made their feet literally like hinds' feet and made them walk upon the high places. When the breeze blew strong from the eternal hills, the established formalities and proprieties of a religious service were cast to the winds. All the Lord's people became prophets, and the ordinary barriers of diffidence and reticence having been swept away, they began to speak, sing, or pray as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see what a story it is, the 59 in Wales? But just to give you one other insight, and no more of this after this example, 
from the African, the Zaire revival in 1953, not many years ago, and there have been many more since in other parts of the world, and from the book This Is That, published for WEC, um, we read of this revival, uh, of this particular movement of the Spirit in one of the mission stations, Ebambi, where we have this report from the field leader and his wife. Now these are responsible English evangelical people writing about this experience. And uh, you must take seriously, of course, not only their observations, but their spiritual understanding of what was going on. These are not amateurs. These are able, experienced, spiritually mature missionaries who for years have been working and praying. And we read here at Ibambi, the field leader and his wife who were away returned a fortnight later to rejoice in what God had begun to do. Up till then, the spirit had been working quietly over the whole compound and largely outside of meetings. But that night, at the meeting, after he had told them a little of what he saw on his visit to Opienge, another station where there had been great revival, the Holy Ghost came down in mighty power. He wrote, We have never seen anything like it before. Words fail to describe it. But we know something now of what it must have been like on the day of Pentecost. As one prayed, Another began to pray, and another, and then the whole congregation together. Such a noise as they poured out their souls in prayer and praise to God. Men, women, boys and girls just drunk with the Spirit. Many shaking beyond their control, others throwing themselves on the floor, some leaning, some standing. One man danced about, exhorting them to fear God and not hide sin, but his voice was soon drowned in the hubbub. We just stood there amazed, but we're not afraid, as we knew the Spirit was working. We just walked about among them, seeking to help where we could, though it was impossible to make oneself heard. If this had not been of God, it would have been terrible, as they were beyond all human control. Although many threw themselves about, or rather were thrown about, yet none was hurt. All this went on for about an hour, and then, as it quietened a bit, a hymn was sung and the people dispersed. We got to bed late, but it was not to sleep much, as our hearts were so full of praise. Last night I read of many examples of these features of that revival. And this is his thought on it. As the blessing continued through successive days, he wrote again, Praise his blessed name for all the wonderful things he's doing in our midst in these days as we have been trusting the Lord for years to pour out his Spirit upon us in revival, now we rejoice in the answer. We do not need to be afraid of any manifestations which are strange to us. Strange things have accompanied every true revival. Well, we've seen some of those. But when the Spirit is allowed full sway, he is able to take care of his own work we need to be continually ready for any revelation he gives. As the enemy seeks to get in, we shall have discernment and be able to recognize his devices. We have certainly seen manifestations we never saw before, but we know the workers of the Spirit because of the outworking of it in a practical way in so many lives. 
Throughout it all, we are seeking to get the teaching home, so that they will really seek Jesus and not just a blessing. We praise God that the teaching we have had on the Word for years is bringing forth fruit. They know what to do, and the Scriptures are being brought to their remembrance by the Spirit. Now, I've added that to a great deal more last night and the night before in order to refresh your, your mind and heart and in order to help bridge the, uh, the space between yesterday and tonight for the sake of those that were absent on that occasion. We've seen then the, the character of revival and how far it is beyond anything the church normally experiences. It is God's strange work. But we must remember too tonight the results of revival. Before I come on to my main point, the results of revival are important. Remember that though revival begins in the churches, it can't be contained in the churches. You might as well try to fence in a tornado as to keep revival in the churches. It is no merely private blessing. It is unspeakably glorious, it is irrepressibly ebullient, and it has an undeniable force and authority which expresses itself through the daily lives, ministries, insights, cautions, witnessings, and testimonies of the people to their neighbors and friends. Indeed, the result of revival is that it affects not just the churches, but entire communities. It can virtually transform a nation. Let me quote one little example that is probably very well known to you all, quite a favorite quotation, from one of the volumes of J. Edwin Orr, whose uh, five or six volumes now, if it's not more, on revival are so valuable, on revival all over the world throughout the, the centuries. He says the story of the Welsh Revival, and this time he's speaking about the Welsh Revival, not in 1859, but in 1904, with Evan Roberts, of whom I spoke on Sunday. The story of the Welsh Revival is astounding. Begun with prayer meetings of less than a score of intercessors, when it burst its bounds, the churches of Wales were crowded for more than two years. A hundred thousand outsiders were converted and added to the churches, the vast majority remaining true to the end. Drunkenness was immediately cut in half, and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves, signifying that there were no cases of murder, assault, rape, or robbery, or the like to consider. The police became unemployed in many districts. <laughs> Stoppages occurred in coal mines, not due to unpleasantness between management and workers, but because so many foul-mouthed miners became converted and stopped using foul language that the horses which hauled the coal trucks in the mines could no longer understand what was being said to them. <laughs> and transportation ground to a halt. <laughs> now, you tell me what can do that today. Not the Reformed, for all our doctrine, 
not the charismatics, for all our gifts, not our big missions and crowded stadiums, for all our publicity. This nation needs revival. Parliament needs it. The people need it. The unions need it. Management and workers need it. The unemployed need it. The rising youth need it. This land needs revival. So we must consider these results because they show us how mighty the work is, not merely for a moment, but in its results and its ongoing work. And the most obvious way in which revival gains such ground, of course, is by the people of God spreading the word and spreading it not with a spirit of timidity, but with a spirit of authority and power that startles their neighbors and their own families alike. And that's what we need today. Not evangelifish, but evangelicals who have the power of God within them. Evangelignites, you might say, if you like punning on words. In other words, we need a generation of godly men and women, believers, who, to use a familiar illustration now, are not merely advocates, but witnesses. Not merely there to argue that there's a God, or to argue that people ought to consider eternity, but people who can testify to what they have seen and experienced in their own lives, and the power of God as a reality in those lives, which has become visible to all. Not advocates, but witnesses, clothed in power and strange authority. And one revival, I've told you so many. And I've told you that they all have different personal characteristics which single them out. One revival which illustrates this very remarkably is the 1965 revival in Timor, Indonesia. Massive sweep of power throughout the jungles and throughout the cities of Timor among the peoples there. Now there, in that 1965-7 to revival, there were the most remarkable things done, and above all things, the most wonderful harvest of souls gathered. I had thought that the number of conversions were about 90,000, but the statistics show that between 1965 and 67, there were over 200,000 baptisms. Yeah. And to quote J. Edwin Orr again, because he is a scholarly, sober sort of researcher, not a gullible man, and a careful man. He writes of that revival and its results, and particularly of the evangelism which characterized it, a new wave of evangelism which was among its results. The present writer, he says, ministered in Indonesia in 1967 and talked with several who had taken part in those meetings in Timor. It seems certain that many of the phenomena of the Acts of the Apostles, the rushing wind, the prophesying, the extraordinary prayer, the visions, tongues, healings, were attested by witnesses. Some since have exaggerated their stories in detail, but that there were phenomena of an unusual kind is affirmed by those who have studied the facts. 
In early October 1965, the revival team visited the town of Nikki Nikki, where an unusual response was witnessed as 9,000 people professed change of heart in two weeks. Pastors began to lose their indifference or hostility to the lay movement and often assisted the teams. Within a couple of years, more than a hundred teams were operating. Some with as few as four members and some with as many as a score or more. Now I give those as some of the results of a revival. But I've changed my plan for tonight because while I was going to speak a good deal more on results, I decided that I must really speak to the occasion more immediately. And so I'm going to speak for the rest of the evening on the way to revival. The way to revival. God forbid that you should leave this place as one who has heard the sound of a very lovely instrument. Someone who has seen something beautiful. A vision, scenery, a possibility, and then go away and forget about it. Just tuck it in your scrapbook of devout reminiscences. No. This has to have an echo here at Lansing Tabernacle and in the churches represented throughout Worthing, Tony Sargent's people at the Tabernacle who so well supported these meetings, who welcomed me so well, and many others. What then is the way to revival? I'm going to bring you three tonight, and I pray that the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ will lay them on your heart and grave them in your mind, enamel them there in his fire, so that you'll not forget them. We want revival, don't we? Well, there must first of all be a great removal of things that hinder. There must be a great demolition before there is a new rebuilding. God is no jerry builder. There must be a removal of hindrances. That's the first thing. Unbelief. Neglect of the great doctrines. Neglect of scripture. Treating with typical late 20th century idle cynicism the great promises of scripture. Unbelief must be confessed. And we must become more ashamed of unbelief than almost any sin that we have ever committed. And I sometimes think that we show how little we think of God because we are less convicted of that than any other sin we, are, we have committed. We are struck by our thefts or our lusts or our swearing or other hypocrisies. But unbelief, well, we are rarely convicted of it. And yet there is no greater affront to the majesty of God than those who stand before his omnipotence and doubt his truthfulness. Unbelief must be removed. Lovelessness in the churches must be removed. That is one of the curse of the churches of this land. And shall I prove it to you? Well, I shall prove it to you. Do you know what the opposite of love is. The opposite of love, I wonder how many of you have thought hatred. Well, you're wrong. The opposite of love is indifference. 
You just don't care. You just don't notice. You're oblivious. The English churches need more than a nodding acquaintance with the back of one another's heads on a Sunday. We need to know what it is to be an organism where the cells grow into one another, where your blood flows in my veins, where my passions beat in your heart, where we have a spiritual unity in which you are as important to me as me and more also, and the person next to you and their spiritual state and life and needs, and where you will beg others to lay hands on you, that they might bless you with some of their sweetness and their power, esteeming others better than yourselves, seeing the beauty of the Savior in another. There must be a removal of unbelief, of lovelessness, of this terrible worldliness which has crept in and fairly paralyzed and drowned and poisoned the church of Jesus Christ in this generation. There is, you remember, a great promise, don't turn to it, in the second book of Chronicles. A great promise in chapter 7 and verse 14. And it never ceases to move us when we hear it. God, the Mighty One, parts his lips and speaks to a disappointing people at a time in their history when they are being given a new chance. God is so full of new chances. And he says, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Oh, that's the thing. If ever a land needed to be healed. It's the land of two million abortions. And the reason there have been two million abortions is because the Christian church let it happen. Idly looked by as it went through Parliament in 1967. We share responsibility, and me too, for this terrible situation well nigh irreversible in a human way of speaking. If my people who are called by my name. Did you sing it earlier? Thou art my God. I will extol thee. My God. Oh, what, what power there is in that. The power of the personal pronouns, the possessive pronouns of scripture and Christian truth. My God. If he says, my people who are called by my name, humble themselves. Not justify themselves, not excuse themselves, humble themselves. You accuse yourself, he'll justify you. Don't justify yourself. He'll justify you when you accuse yourself. You'll bury your sins when you bring them in chains before him and admit their existence. Then I will hear from heaven. A tear has a very loud cry, don't you know? Yes, 
louder than a shout, a tear, pain. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Do you know, in the Zaire account that we read earlier, and that I read last night, I told you something of the remarkable work that was done there in the mission station at Opienge. And it's interesting that the wife of the chief elder there received right at the beginning a thrilling outpouring of the spirit. Right in the middle of the night, she suddenly sat up in bed and was found crying at the top of her voice, praise and thanksgiving to Jesus. All the neighbors flocked there, there was such a racket. And it was the middle of the night. Her loud cries of joy bringing a crowd of neighbors. Then she had a vision. A voice spoke to her. Peleza, I want to do a great work here at Opienge. But there is much hardness. If you want to light a good fire, do you get one by laying the wood among the ashes? No, she answered. Then the voice asked, what must be done then? Clean away the ashes first. That is right, the voice said. I want a clean place for my fire. That's what he wants. The removal of hindrances. Does he have it in your life? He wants a clean place for his fire. Not the soft porn of the television at 11 o'clock at night. Not juggling the books in your business and fiddling your tax returns. Not the bitterness and the hypocrisy that cuts people down and loves to kick them when they're down. He wants a clean place for his fire. Do you know, a preacher shouldn't repeat an illustration that he's given, but just before I came here in the weekend, I was preparing to speak at Worthing Tab for Tony Sargent in the morning, Worthing Tabernacle, and Tony's there. And um, uh, I, was, I was thinking uh, about what I was going to be saying and in a somewhat different context. And I suddenly remembered something from my childhood. One of my earliest memories, Welshmen are terrible for nostalgia. One of my earliest memories, when I was sort of between two and three, is waking up in bed and opening my eyes at the crack of dawn and hearing my father rattling the poker in the grate as he began to prepare the fire. Now, we used to have a thing called the Chatterton Special. I told you at Worthing Tabernacle. Does anybody know what a Chatterton Special is? Well, there's no hands going up. Well, they don't make them like that anymore. Not since the 1920s at any rate. But it was, you remember the big old black grates? Well, it was a great advance on that, and it was tiled all over, but it had a top oven, and it had a side oven, and it had flues, and the heat went through. And um, it was quite a substantial thing, and it had good, solid, substantial cast iron bars. And Dad used to get the poker, you see, and it was a rattle, 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 as he tried to get the dust through the bottom so that he could collect the dust and, uh, and make the fire. And the first thing in the morning, well, when I was a boy, I remember it for several years, that would be the first sound I would hear in the morning, the rattle of the poker. Heralding a new day. Others remember the dawn chorus, no doubt, but I had a poker rattling. <laughs> we lived in a little 
tiniest little cottage you ever saw in your life in the back of the village shop, which we also had had in the family for years. And it was a tiny little place, overlooked the mountain. And there was this poker going. And my mother used to say to him, I remember, she said it, in fact, most of his life, actually, if the truth were known. <laughs> Jack, she used to say, you never can light a decent fire. I never get a decent fire when you've done it first thing in the morning. I'd rather you leave it to me. You get the poker and you scrape about in the ashes and you make a little hole and you push the paper and the stick and the coal and you light it and for the rest of the day I've got a choked up fire. Why don't you clean the grate out properly and get rid of it all and have a, a good uh, space for the, the air, to, the draft to blow through? <laughs> I remember it well. But, you know, he never learned... <laughs> he never learns but what an illustration what an illustration of Christians who've gone all their lives to their retirement scratching around among the ashes to make a little nest for God and the Holy Spirit and the little bit of fire they've got and it's all choked up because they didn't clean out the grate. If my people shall clean out the grate, what good is the wind of the Spirit if it can't blow through the soul? A choked up soul, even on the day of Pentecost, couldn't get anywhere. Well, now, the way to revival starts just here, doesn't it? There must be a removal of hindrances in your life not the person next to you not your wife, husband or children your life search them out ask him to show you what's grieving you in his, what, him in your life it may not be the thing you think that may be grieving him but something else giving him much more pain let him search Jerusalem with candles again a Jerusalem of your heart for what is unleavened and offensive and polluting but then there is a second way to revival. Second matter. There must be, beyond any doubt, there must be faithful prayer. But wait a minute. Lest you switch off thinking, well, I've heard that sort of thing before. Wait. There must be unfailing faithful prayer leading in God's hour to prophetic prayer. Now, do you know the difference between faithful prayer and prophetic prayer? I must admit, I have not heard the difference clearly set out, but I believe that it's there, and that it's one of the key differences in this matter of revival and prayer before revival. Now, what is faithful prayer and what is prophetic prayer? Let me just give you illustrations that you can remember from Scripture. Just at a glance. Here is an example from Isaiah chapter 62 of faithful prayer in connection with God's work and in connection with revival. You will have heard it often quoted precisely in this connection. God says, Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. 
You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. You who put the Lord in remembrance as if he needed his memory jogged. Of course he doesn't. But you see how he stoops to our little human experiences and he says, come on, remind me, what am I going to do? Remind me, what, what's, what's my great work? What do I like doing? Fathers play with their children. Strange that we have a playful God. But that's just part of his fatherliness. And there's a serious purpose behind it too. And so he says, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, the church, and makes it a praise in the earth, until he makes it the most dominant factor in the present-day history of the nations. Now, that is faithful prayer, giving him no rest. Now, is there an example of prophetic prayer? Well, I think there is. I think uh, perhaps just, just one example of um, prophetic prayer would be found in, in Daniel chapter 9. There is that long, glorious prayer of Daniel. He knows that the time of the 70 years captivity that they've endured in Babylon is coming to an end. And so he seeks the face of God for the promised deliverance that had been given a generation before through the prophet Jeremiah. And we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and supplications, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. They'd been exiled for their apostasy, their national sin, their corruption and pollution. Hence the fasting and the sackcloth and the ashes. And he prays that incomparable prayer. Now therefore, verse 17, O God, hearken to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications and for thine own sake, O Lord, cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline thy ear and hear. Open thy eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name, O ruined Jerusalem. For we do not present our supplications before thee on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of thy great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, because of the city, thy city, and thy people that are called by thy name. And you know what we read as an astonishing postscript to this, which is why I say it's a prophetic prayer, not just a faithful one. We read, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the people Israel, then the man Gabriel, the angelic being, of course, who'd come in the form of man, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and said to me, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went forth. 
That's the prophetic element. It wasn't at the amen of his prayers when he began his prayers in sackcloth and ashes. A word went forth from heaven. The decree invisible in the mind of God was being made manifest in the heavenly places. Angelic beings were being sent to wrestle and to overthrow every contrary power and to bring the holy people back to their ancient city and to the eternal purposes of God. At the beginning, soon as he began to pray, he'd been praying for years, faithful prayer. But on this occasion, on his face, prophetic prayer. And it brings the very angels out of heaven. For I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly beloved. You are greatly beloved. Now that's just one example and we could have gone on to, to more. But now you say, well how do you know that these two types of prayer are very important in revival? Well I'll give you two illustrations from history. Like I've given you two illustrations from the Bible. Now you take the great Wesley Whitfield revival. It began with George Whitfield and continued under Wesley. There were many other figures, fine figures, big men. It was in fact a revival of such stature that I think probably there is no other revival to equal it. And the only reason that I haven't quoted from great outpouring in New England and here in this country in England and in Wales and Scotland and so on. Now, I have always felt, you know, and I think some of you know through what Max said uh, when he introduced me, that um, uh, my period is very much the 17th century Puritans. And I wrote a book on them a, a while ago that uh, some of you were buying last night. Well, there were about 2,000 of these great Puritan vicars and clergymen in the Church of England who were cast out of their livings thrown out in 1662. They were the best, the ablest, the most learned men in the church, as Bishop Ryle generations later admitted and insisted, regarding himself as very much one of them, as it were. Yet they were cast adrift, and for the rest of their lives, many of them, having had great congregations, were hunted men, speaking to little house groups here and there. Now these were not only very often fine theologians, but they were undoubtedly some of the greatest preachers and a race of great preachers that, were that, that, that this country has ever known. But they were also great prayers. Now that's interesting. Great preaching is one thing, great praying is another. But they were great prayers. And for the next 20 or 30 years till they died, do you know what they did? They prayed, and they prayed by the hour, and the week, and the month, and the year. And when Puritans pray, boy, they pray. You read the, di the diaries of Oliver Haywood, and you'll find that many of the small cottage meetings of him, his family, and some friends, they were more like Pentecostal tarrying meetings than anything else. Loud cries, tears, storming heaven. These were men of deep spiritual experience, solid Calvinistic divines, but they knew more than the form of words. And they prayed. By the hour, it was commonplace for him to pray for two hours in a small prayer meeting. And then one of his friends would start for another hour or two. Very often their prayers would go on. From two o'clock to seven or eight in the afternoon they would have their meetings. 
They were great prayers. Now you imagine 2,000 of those crying out for blessing on this land. Can you imagine the reservoir of prayer that was building up in the heart of God? Was there ever such a dam to burst forth its banks and pour on this country a saturation of blessing? And we had it. We had it a generation later when it all died. The last of them died in about, oh, I don't know, 1712, 1714, as a very old man. And then, 1735, 1738, 1740, 42. Then you're into such revival that this land and the world since the days of the apostles hardly knew. Don't tell me there's no connection between faithful prayer and revival. God never let a prayer drop in his life or in yours. As old Thomas Goodwin the Puritan puts it, he hangs it on a file. It's never wasted. Do you think Christ gathered up the scraps of the loaves of the fishes that nothing be lost because of the principle that food should not waste? Do you think God wastes prayers who does not waste food and scraps of that? Never feel your prayers are in vain or lost because they're not straightway answered. God has other ways of going to work with your prayers. And of course we've had similar examples of this faithful prayer in the 1950s in London and places. There were these all-night prayer meetings. You remember at Paul's Portman Square and uh, things like that. And yet, nothing really happened in this country commensurate with what was being prayed for. But it isn't lost, you see. It is never lost. You are lost. Your prayers are never lost. None of your meetings for revival. Now that's faithful prayer in history. But wait a minute. What about prophetic prayer in history? Have we got examples of that? Well, you have. I've already given the show away on Sunday night, haven't I? When I was told, t telling you about the extraordinary people God used in revivals. Do you remember me telling you about Peggy and Christine Smith at Lewis? Those two old women, 84 and blind, uh, and 82 and arthritic, crippled, housebound women. But these, these old women were wrestling in prayer. They'd been praying faithfully, they'd been praying long, but gradually they were getting deeper and deeper into God and something new was happening in their prayer life. There is no question about it. Those two old women, humanly speaking, they were the cause of the revival. Humanly speaking. They were the, the trigger, as it were, more than Duncan Campbell, more even than other coadjutors beforehand who were there preparing the ground. Those two women were the trigger, God's trigger, as I showed you in 1949. And that scene that I quoted to you, when revival really broke on the island, you remember the woman weeping with her son in her arms, the congregation sweeping back into the church, you remember? Those old women had been battling that night as they'd never battled before. They prayed right through until dawn, knowing they'd got the victory. And it had broken. Prophetic prayer. That's prophetic prayer. They knew that they'd broken through. And I could quote you many others. For instance, there were two missionaries moved to pray in Zaire. In connection with the revival that I've quoted extensively in these three days. And one of them writes, a woman, as a matter of fact... My spirit was overwhelmed within me. I went to my husband and we talked together of the need of revival. And then we got to prayer. The burden was terrific. 
We told God we didn't mind where revival began or through whom, but revival we must have. We were desperate. Others were desperate also. When news came from Lubutu that revival had started, we found that it began that very weekend. And if you read that revival, you will find that this supernatural element in prayer, this divine energy in prayer, continues during the revival. Uh, writes another Zaire missionary, very vividly, I think, the burden tore at you until you were sore and weary. I know now what real intercession is. And the vast difference between prayer and intercession. You feel you could die unless the Lord answers. And again the same writer in, in one sentence I think gives the most perceptive insight into what I've called prophetic prayer of all. I don't know a better sentence. You judge. We have never been in such prayer meetings before. Praying together seems to release power. As the Holy Ghost lays the burden of intercession upon them, so he prays through them. Romans 8, of course. As the Holy Ghost lays the burden of intercession upon them, so he prays through them. Now, how do you explain this? Well, theologically speaking, we ought to remember that omnipotence is not effortlessness. When we talk of God's omnipotence, his power to do anything he wills, we are not quite talking about the same as God's effortlessness. Not everything that God does is effortless. Calvary was not effortless for God. Neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit as the Son descended into hell. And God's dealings with people are not effortless. God knows what it is to wrestle with his Jacobs at their jabbocks. He leaves them limping, but he himself knows what it is to shape a life, to release a soul with effort. And prayers, prophetic prayer, seems to enter into the effort of God. You become co-worker in, with him in bringing to birth Something that is massive, something that is mighty. Let me put it another way. God can create a world effortlessly if he wants. He could create the world in six minutes, let alone six days. In six seconds. He could create a galaxy in the moment of thought. Of course he could. No question about it. But you're not dealing with galaxies or worlds. You're dealing with something much more complicated. You're dealing with people. They may be little in terms of worlds. But they are human beings made in the image of God. In some ways they are on the God side of creation. Thou madest him little less than God. And when God deals with people in his omnipotence, 
There is power, there is care, there is that within God which is the equivalent of, whatever it may be, of all our efforts and care in dealing with the most difficult things in life, the most tender things in life, the most delicate, the most fragile, the most important, the most precious. And prophetic prayer shares in the travail of God for nations, cities, and their people. All the Ninevehs of our day. Well, my time is nearly gone. There is one more thing, however, that I want to bring out. Remember, I'm speaking about the way of revival. A way we must prepare. There is first the removal of hindrances. There is second, prayer. Faithful prayer. And in God's time, it will become, in his own moment, prophetic prayer. When suddenly you're given new energy and power, which is itself the harbinger of revival. Then the old saying comes true, prayer is the footfall of the divine decree. But now there is one last preparation for revival that I want to impress upon you here tonight. Please gather up your energies and concentration for this. It means a lot to your minister here that I should speak of this, and to some other ministers here, and to some of the elders here also. There needs to be, in preparation for revival, an acquaintance with the direct and immediate working of the Holy Spirit in your own experience. Now, you can call it whatever you like. You can call it the baptism in the Spirit. You can call it the sealing of the Spirit. You can call it the direct witness of the Holy Ghost. You can call it what you like. And whatever controversy you may have about charismatic gifts, tongues, or healings, or prophecy, and be careful, you don't limit God. But whatever doubts or difficulties you may have, if you're reverent, he'll cope with your doubts and difficulties and he'll understand. But underneath all controversy, underneath all these other things, there is one substratum that ought to be without contradiction among all evangelicals. That there is a level of spiritual experience where the soul meets his God and God meets the soul directly. Not just deducing that you're a Christian because of promises in the Bible, working it out that the Bible says this, well I've done that, therefore I must be saved. That's all right, that will help you. There are dark nights when you have to hang on to the naked promise of God and there's nothing else. But there's more than that. Not simply deducing the fact that you're saved because your life has been changed. That's powerful, that's mighty, that's good, and that's true. And you need not be ashamed of it. That's another step, again. But you don't stop there either. There are times when God comes to the soul so mighty, so deeply moving, that they are among the red-letter days of your soul through all eternity. And I tell you that if you know nothing about this, or, let me be quite precise, if you want to know nothing about this, if you're not interested in that level of Christian life, 
You are not fit to pray for revival and you certainly won't cope with revival. If you can't cope with the charismatic movement, I wonder if you're going to cope with revival. You say, oh, well, there are excesses. Oh, there are many more excesses in revival. And you've got to sort it out, I'm afraid. You get lots of bruises, lots of mistakes. You fall flat on your face. That's all right, your father can pick you up. Spurgeon used to pray for a season of holy disorder. But I have to say that whatever your views on these things may be, if you can't cope with the lesser, how can you cope with the greater? Because beyond a doubt, there are people mightily blessed by the Spirit of God in this generation. And in strange and wonderful ways in the churches. You don't just write it all off. What are you going to do? You've got 50 million Pentecostals in the world. They're all evangelicals with Bibles in their hands. You've got 20 million charismatics in the world, and most of them are evangelicals too. You're going to write a lot of them off. You can't judge everything by your own experience. You have to go to the Acts of the Apostles and bow with bared head before God's freedom in these matters. But you know, if you can't cope, if you can't cope with people lifting up their hands even, well, what sort of an anemic Christian have you become? If you can't cope with singing these songs with somebody clapping, with somebody shouting hallelujah, well, what on earth are you going to do with revival? when everything is in upheaval, glorious disorder around you. Do you think that revival will produce serried ranks of seated people listening to nice long sermons? It isn't like that. If you can't run against men, how are you going to run against horses? Now, my dear friends, I don't want anybody to switch off and think that I'm going to start plugging certain parties and certain people and certain claims. I want all your attention in these last few minutes because I am going to speak about something that ought to be without controversy among us. I'm going to speak about something that we all ought to recognize as God's wonderful work, the direct and immediate witness of the Holy Spirit with our hearts that God is our God and we are his people. Nothing could be plainer in the New Testament and it is in fact a sort of link to consider this and to consider revival. You remember I said at the beginning that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to describe revival in one sentence as a baptism in the Holy Spirit on a massive scale. You remember that? And if you read his book Joy Unspeakable, I hope you'll all read it. If you haven't read it, it's one of the it's one of the great books of the decade. I was a student at London when he preached the series in 1965, and he spoke on the subject in other more learned books of his, but he did this series on the comings down of God. Now, you ought to read that book. If you can't agree with that book, there's something wrong with you when I give you up. You know, it'll all just pass you by. But if you've got a heart that beats in love to God, if you've got any warmth, you'll say, that I can agree with and relate to. Nothing whets the appetite for revival more than to experience this sort of thing. So, let me perhaps end by giving you my own experience. Now, I'm very reluctant to do this. Very reluctant indeed. I don't like these preachers that are always preaching themselves. You know what it is. 
They're always telling you how broken they are and how filled they become. And if you think they're wonderful people, it's because they've told you they're wonderful people. You know. Paul says, we preach not ourselves. Some of these couldn't say that. Now, I'm very reluctant to do this, but I was addressing a company of ministers from, from this town and beyond on Monday at, uh, at Worthing Tabernacle, and um, having spoken for an hour or so on the subject, which was coping with change in the churches and in the day, um, Tony Sargent prevailed on me. I couldn't really resist because he asked the question in public. I didn't have a choice. He said, now, will you tell these people something of your own experience about this very controverted matter about, um, about the Holy Spirit and the change that he has made in, in your own life and church and in these years. And so I, I did. And there were one or two other people from this church here, including one or two of your elders, who've asked me to do the same because they said, look, our people will relate to that. And I hope you will. So here goes. I began preaching in Wales when I was 15. I wanted to be a preacher since I was seven. When I was 14, I had a very great, a profound call from God. Before, it was no doubt a childish thing. But when I was 15, I began to preach. When I was 16, I was preaching up and down the Welsh Valleys most Sundays, and when I was 17. And about that time, when I was a boy of 16, 17, I began to read the Acts of the Apostles. And a great sense came over me that this was a level of experience of God my Father that I didn't have. And not only I didn't have it, but none of the ministers around me had it. Not even the one or two evangelicals that I discovered, because I didn't know what an evangelical was for a little while. And the burden grew and the, the desire grew to such a point that at that point, for weeks, I was in prayer on this one matter. And I prayed, and I wept, and I sobbed till three o'clock in the morning sometimes, by my bed. Nobody knew. None of my family, none of my friends, none of the ministers. As I groaned and cried over this Acts 2 business, and all the other things. And I got to the point of such agony and despair... Perhaps Welsh people tend to think in pictures, I don't know, but I seem to see myself outside the throne room of God, shut out, outside a closed door, a great closed door. There was the light within, there was the glory within, there was the face of God within, and there was me in the porch in the shadows. I won't say I was curled up in a corner like a dog, because we are not dogs, we are children. But I was like a child crying through a crack in the door to be let in. And I cried and prayed and prayed. Now nothing happened. And I got to the point where I thought, well, it may be that that was my experience. At least it shows me how much I want my father's face. And I know I'm his child. I'm going to leave it with him. And I went to a thing called Bible College for a few years, and then I went somewhere else and, uh, for a year. And then I got married, and after a year, I went to a church, my first church. I'm still the minister of that church. This is about 16 years ago I went. It was a, 
an old barn of a building in the slums of the Midlands. I asked the Lord for a country parish in the south and he gave me a Midland slum. Who says God hasn't got a sense of humor? But really, I loved the church and I, I was so thrilled that at last the dreams of a lifetime were being realized. And to me, well, if they'd made me, you know, the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I could not have been more, more pleased, more thrilled. I wouldn't have been half so thrilled if the truth were known. <laughs> I would much rather be what I am. But I preached through the year and I began with a church that wasn't even evangelical. I mean, it really was amazing how I was led there. I'd refused one church and I, I, I'd accepted this. I was led there. There were about 40 people, most of them old, most of them totally untaught. There was a tiny core that I knew had the possibilities of life there. They didn't know what an evangelical was. They thought it was something to do with Billy Graham. They were thinking of the word evangelist, of course. They did not have a clue. And so clearly the first work that I had to do was to evangelicalize them, as you could say, you know. To, to sort of teach them the basic doctrines of scripture. And I did it. The first year I expounded the Gospel of John, and I spent a couple of years on Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 in the Bible studies. And I really started to get some foundations under the church, you see. Well, I'd been there about a year, and I was, um, it was an evening service, and we were having an evangelistic service. There were the people there. Everything as usual. And I was preaching as best I could. But then in the middle of my sermon, I looked at the congregation and I looked at these unsaved people. And I cried out at one point, I am not surprised that God loves you. What overwhelms me is that God loves Peter Lewis. And you know, as I said it, well, I can only say it was like the ceiling coming down. It was a weight. Woof. It was like standing under a waterfall with a weight of water coming down. Paul talks about the exceeding weight of glory. There is a weight. It is directional. It is a coming down. Not a welling up, it's a coming down. And I was taken, I was utterly paralyzed. God had come. In such power and in such response to that one sentence, I stood there paralyzed. I was gripping a, I was gripping a pulpit rail with my right hand, I remember. I think my left hand might have been raised. I was utterly paralyzed as suddenly he took me up and up and up and up, saying, of course I've loved you, Peter. I've always loved you. It's no wonder I'm a Calvinist. It was as if he put cosmic binoculars to my eyes and showed me the eternal dimension of that love, the depth of it. It had been going on and on and on. There was never a time when he hadn't. The weight, the glory, the depth of it. And I remember thinking to myself, well, Lord, this is wonderful, but I can't just stand here. It I mean, a minute it must have gone or more, and everybody's wondering what on earth's happening to the preacher. He's transfixed, you know. I think the poor fellow was having a fit or something. And I remember croaking to the congregation the last few words of an appeal. And as I began to speak, I began to cry copiously, began to weep helplessly. I walked out those last few words or phrases as in a cracked voice I called them to come to such a love 
I pointed to the hymn board where the last hymn was and I let them sing. And I sat down in the pulpit and I just let it come over. Wave after wave after wave after wave. It was the, the enthusiasm of the divine love, the exuberance of the divine love, the generosity of the divine love. It was God hugging his child. It was the Holy Spirit being poured out. And I wept and wept and wept. As we say in Wales, I wept buckets. And I said, I don't know what on earth they're going to make of this, Lord, but it's wonderful and I know what it is. I was remembering the boy, the little boy, the young Welsh boy, outside his father's throne room, crying through a crack in the door. And here the father had opened the door, the light was spilling out, and he had come rushing to his child. Do you think I could have any doubts of the divine love then? I got back to... Oh, isn't life funny? I got back to the minister's room. I couldn't have stood at the door and shaken hands, of course. And I said, well, I don't know what they're going to make of this, Lord. They're hardly evangelical yet. How on earth are they going to understand what's happened? And the oldest deacon came in, eyes full of concern. <laughs> he couldn't imagine what had happened, poor fellow. And he offered me a cigarette to cool down. Well, these are the delightful touches of life, that's all right. But, oh, friends, I think I sinned. I think I sinned. The next day in my study, I said, oh, Lord, that was wonderful. But, you know, Lord, they can't take much of that. They're not mature enough in the gospel. I think what I meant was that I couldn't take much more of it. <laughs> Because, of course, these things, these things are, I suppose, they're embarrassing. They're also frightening. You don't know what's going to happen. That's natural enough. He can cope with that. But there was I saying, you know, Lord, they can't cope with this yet. They're not, they're not evangelical enough. Me teaching God pastoral theology. Yeah? <laughs> and the next Sunday in the long prayer, it began to happen again. And I cried out that God would hold it off. Because they couldn't cope. I think I meant I couldn't cope too. I think I sinned. I should have let it all happen. Let him sort it out. Perhaps it would have divided the sheep from the wolves and the wheat from the chaff a bit quicker than it than happened. They were divided in the end, of course. Evangelical preaching always does. It empties the church before it fills it. And a good thing too. But you see, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you see what I say when I say you must not let this business about the charismatic movement. Matters of tongues, prophecy, you may have trouble. Never mind, don't worry. This business about joyful singing and raising of hands. Skipping about, if they want. Underneath that, there's something so much bigger. But you must never, ever deny. You must never allow yourself to be alienated about these things. Churches should never be split on these things. Where there is a strong leadership, where there is a sane leadership, where there is a well-taught church, where there are experienced evangelical people, you can take diversity. But underneath there ought to be this oneness, that there is a dimension 
which reduces a man to tears. There is a face-to-face. There is a direct witness of the Holy Spirit. There is power from on high. Even before revival, there is power for the people of God. The promise, said Peter, is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even to as many as call upon the name of the Lord. Short of revival, there are baptisms, there are fillings, there are sealings for the the individual heart and for many within the congregation of God's people. And you should seek it. And oh, when you're given it, and it's a sovereign thing, you don't know when he's going to give it you. You must be faithful. It's up to him. His timing is up to him. Oh, when you receive it, you hold on to it with both hands. And your teeth, if necessary, too. Hold him fast and never let him go. Hold him fast for as long as he gives you the joy, the power, the baptism. Let it exhaust you, let it prostrate you, let it take you wherever it wills, don't worry. Rejoice in these excellent acts of God. The Father has taken you up, he's holding you close, you can feel the very body heat of God. The sweet breath of his love from the eternal hills is being breathed into your soul. You can't deny that, can you? You don't have any trouble with that, do you? You're not so sunk and so sodden in compromise or mediocrity or theological prejudice that you've got any trouble about that, have you? There's no hope for you if you haven't. I don't know what we can do with you anymore. You may be an evangelical in name, you may have the right notional doctrines, but you've lost something. Something that didn't begin with the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement. Something that has always characterized Protestantism throughout 500 years in English history. The Puritans knew about it. The Reformers knew about it. The great revivalists knew about it. Charles Spurgeon knew about it. Oh, friends, if there is one final preparation for revival, it is to understand this dimension of Christian experience. To seek it to recognize it, to rejoice in it when others also have it, not to block it, and to open your churches, their doors and the windows of your own soul, to everything that God has for his people in this day, everything. And then to ask for more. The biggest outflow of all, the bursting of the dam. The prayers of the years poured out. Restore, O Lord, the honor of your name. In works of sovereign power come, shake the earth again. That men may see and come with reverent fear to the living God, whose kingdom shall outlast the years. Bend us, O Lord. Where we are hard and cold, in your refiner's fire come, purify the gold. When suffering comes, and evil crouches near, still our living God is with us. He is reigning here. Restore, O Lord, in all the earth your fame. And in our time revive 
the church that bears your name. And in your anger, Lord, remember mercy. O living God, whose mercy shall outlast the years. Does your soul say amen to that? Do you have Isaiah's longing? Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. As Lloyd-Jones used to say, get the all back into your prayers. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. Let us stand quietly together before this God. Father, I can't do any more, but you can do a lot more. There is no limit to your power. Your patience has endured us. Oh, let your love conquer us. Clean out the ashes of our lives. Let the wind of your spirit blow where the fires of God have been burning low. Let it quicken us to a blaze. Let prayerless marriages rebuild family altars. Let wanton children embrace parents they despised. Let loveless church members implore the forgiveness of those they esteem better than themselves. Let us ministers be the crucified men we should be, bearing our cross daily, but in the power of the new life of Christ. Revive your church in this day. Father, let this place, Lansing Tabernacle, move in these years into a chapter which history shall ring of, that its members might speak to their children and their children's children of the things God did in the day of his power and let none block the work. And through this land and its churches, through Europe and its millions, from nation to nation and across seas and mountains, oh, grant that your breath might blow from heaven that from the throne of the risen Christ who died for the world, there might pour mighty power for the world he purchased with his own blood. Revive us in our day. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, and for the people that are called, by thy name, we ask it in the exalted name of Jesus, your Son,